It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. BC's COVID hotspot. We need to keep our groups small. Dr. Henry addresses the high rate of infection in the Fraser Valley. Mask madness. Another outburst over mandatory face coverings and calls for better security on public transit. And the surprise of a generous gift. I woke up the next day and there was $10,000 in my bank account. How parents of a sick child are sharing their windfall. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Sophie is off today. The daily average of COVID infections remains above 200 as we check the latest numbers for BC. We have 234 new cases of the virus today after testing more than 10,000 people. That puts our positivity rate at 2.3%. Total cases in the province are now 14,109. Sadly, one more person has died, meaning we've now lost 262 people. 86 patients are in hospital, 24 of those in the ICU. 11,448 are considered recovered now, leaving us with 2,344 active cases and more than 5,700 people in isolation. B.C.'s provincial health officer says imposing regional restrictions on certain parts of B.C. to curb the growth of cases is an option. That comment is Dr. Bonnie Henry took over or took her pandemic news conference to Surrey today, the current hot zone in B.C. for COVID-19 cases. Jordan Armstrong reports. A community of large homes, large families and B.C.'s largest COVID case count. Dr. Bonnie Henry came to Surrey to sell an urgent message. We need to keep our group small, and I know that goes against many of our cultural norms, and it's not how we would normally spend some of these important celebrations together. She revealed the latest death occurred in Fraser Health and involved a woman in her 80s who got sick after attending a small birthday party inside a home. By small, less than 10 people were at this home, and unfortunately... Somebody unknowingly brought COVID-19. The majority of people who were in that home became infected. Thanksgiving led to a significant spike in cases, and Dr. Henry stressed Halloween parties cannot happen. She also reiterated her concern about transmission in large multi-generational homes. In a household where there's multi-generational and large numbers of people, we should not be going out and doing some of those activities that are riskier, whether that's going to the gym, going to things like a spin class. The South Asian community is, it's a collectivist culture. UBC lecturer Gurinder Mann says education in multiple languages is critical. I think we can rely on the multilingual media as well, that hopefully they can reach out to the diverse communities that reside here in BC, that everyone can get that message. BC's top doctor says more outreach is being done in certain communities and with support from faith leaders. And she won't rule out restrictions specific to Fraser Health. There is the possibility of adding regional specific orders. We know there's a lot of transmission in some communities more than others. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. 
All right, Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the growing challenge for contact tracers. Mm -hmm. And Keith, Dr. Henry, making sure there are enough people to do that job. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, hundreds more are being hired here. So this is a, a new phenomenon. We've had contact tracers uh, forever to track uh, diseases that are just commonplace. But now it's trying to track COVID. That's spreading in record amounts. So it was the plan was to uh, hire 500 contact tracers. And now the plan announced today is 300 more on top of that. These are specially trained people to interview people once they test positive for the virus and find out where they've been. Dr. Henry today is saying that they're finding more contacts. It's uh, taking more work and more time to do this and so the number is being bumped up significantly. Here's Dr. Henry. We've pulled in uh, people who work in health authorities, even uh, speech pathologists and others, but that also means there is other important work that they are not doing, like our childhood immunization programs and uh, restaurant inspections, and, and that's important. We have a balance, but right now the focus is on making sure we're controlling this pandemic. And so these additional uh, five to 800 people are going to supplement the people who've been doing this work all along. So why contact tracing is so important. It's important to find out where everybody's been who's had the virus and find other people who've been in contact with them as quickly as possible. The other number that keeps rising significantly is the number of people required to self-isolate at home. We're now approaching 6,000 people, which is amazing. But they're there because contact tracers are finding them. And that's the equivalent, Chris, of 6,000 people being off work. It's literally becoming an employment issue because COVID is uh, uh, rampaging around the province, not so much the province, but around the Fraser Health Authority and and they're desperate to get a lid on that uh, virus because right now the numbers are potentially explosive. So much industry uh, attached to our food chain out there in the Fraser Valley exactly. as well. Yeah, very important. Okay, thanks very much, Keith. The surge in cases in the Fraser, uh, Fraser Health Authority has many concerned parents in Surrey calling for stricter regulations around schools. As Richard Zussman reports, they want more transparency and an order to make masks mandatory. It has become a daily occurrence, a case of COVID-19 detected at a Surrey school. 24 different schools in the district now listed. And this has parents worried and wanting more information. When we receive an email from the school saying, saying that there was an exposure at their school, they want more than that. They want to know where in the school the exposure was, who, who was affected. Fraser Health and more specifically Surrey have become the epicenter of the spread of COVID-19. A positivity rate in the region of 5%, well above the provincial average. But this is not enough to influence tightening up school restrictions or even closing schools. We look at whether uh, outbreaks are happening and whether there's transmission happening in schools. We look at uh, the rates of positivity, but also um, how they're connected. The province will only close schools if there aren't enough teachers to keep them open. If enough teachers have to stay away with either COVID test, waiting for test results, mild symptoms, actual sickness, burnout, maybe we won't have enough teachers to open the, keep the schools open. I can't predict it. Teacher burnout in Surrey is becoming much more common. A high level of stress over cases and knowing few details about those cases. Some are very nervous. Some are so nervous they're not at work. You know, some have asked for accommodations. Most have been denied to work remotely. Um, some are taking unpaid leave. We need to support each other to deal with these stresses. One suggestion from parents to address concerns, mandatory masks at schools, but it's something Dr. Henry has been insistent is not necessary. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria.
Video of an angry confrontation over face masks on transit has surfaced online. It's just the latest outburst from a passenger seemingly upset over pandemic protocols. Nadia Stewart shows us more. Another video showing a confrontation on public transit over masks is making the rounds on social media. It appears an argument over between two, uh, two men over either wearing or not wearing a mask. This latest incident, one of a handful on public transit in the metro area. Transit Police Sergeant Clint Hampton says as bad as this video is, fights like this are not happening frequently. When you, you see a couple videos over a short period of time show up that, uh, that are kind of showcasing um, confrontations over masks, it appears to be a bigger issue than it is. And I only say that in the sense that we aren't getting this massive influx of calls. It's not something that we're dealing with on a daily basis. Still, the videos are concerning. At the same time, a growing number of people in BC are resisting the science around face coverings. As Dr. Bonnie Henry notes, masks are a tool, one of many used to help slow the spread of the virus. There's no evidence that I've seen that making it mandatory is going to change the mind of those very small number of people who have a mindset against wearing a mask. Early research shows women are more likely to wear masks than men, and there is some speculation on how people are internalizing feelings around them, possibly shedding some light on the recent SkyTrain fight. Dealing with six months of all our actions being moralized, everything being judged, feeling guilty about what we're doing or not doing, uh, making judgments about everybody else has had us all a bit on edge about this stuff and, and ready to kind of maybe fly off the handle in the types of situations as we saw on the SkyTrain there. Transit police are encouraging people not to enforce the mask mandate themselves, but to call for help. Nadia Stewart, Global News. Vancouver police have arrested a man for sexual assault while he allegedly posed as an Uber driver, and they believe there may be more victims out there. Langley resident Hardipal Bath has been charged with sexual assault and forcible confinement in connection with an incident August 26th. Police say the 24-year-old suspect was driving a white Land Rover pretending to be an Uber driver when he drove the victim into Vancouver. Bath is accused of assault assaulting the victim near the Oak Street and King or over the Oak Street and King Edward Avenue. Police say Bath may have targeted others and they're asking anyone with information to come forward. He was convicted for a similar crime back in 2017. Police in Victorian Hour are investigating an alarming incident that happened in the early hours of this morning. Vic PD were called to the 800 block of Cormorant Street shortly before 4 a.m. Officers spoke with a woman who had been sexually assaulted. The male suspect was unknown to the victim. She was eventually able to fight him off, and he was last seen riding away from the area on a gray mountain bike. The suspect described as South Asian or black, around six feet, two inches, with a slim build. He wore a dark hooded sweater and a mask over his face. One man is dead and a woman injured in an overnight stabbing incident in Maple Ridge. Police were called to the home on Nelson Court just after 11 o'clock last night where they found the body of a man in his 20s. The woman was taken to hospital suffering from non-life-threatening stab wounds. The homicide investigation team says another man in his 20s has been taken into custody and that all three people involved were members of the same family and lived in the house together. 
The body of a man found in Squamish three years ago has now been identified. Homicide investigators say he was a well-known climber in the close-knit community. And there are now growing questions about his past. Ted Chernecki shows us why. On the morning of June 14, 2017, when a burned-out vehicle, similar to this one, was found on a logging road near Squamish with human remains inside, it looked like one of those gangland executions. The victim could only be identified as someone calling himself Jesse James, an avid climber in the area. Now, more than three years later, the RCMP know who he really is. I can tell you that uh, we were able to confirm his identity through DNA. He was reported missing from his family, by his family, uh, in the United States. And that's how we were able to confirm his identity. Jesse James is, in fact, Davis Wolfgang Hawk, 38 years old at the time of his death. His identity is key to finding his killer or killers. There's a lot of questions. And, and a lot of these cases, when we know the identity, we have an idea of, of what happened. We, have, we can formulate theories on... You know, who could have done this? RCMP say they are aware of a Wikipedia file describing one Davis Wolfgang Hawk, a neo-Nazi spammer from Rhode Island. The site says that in 2004, America Online won a $12.8 million judgment against Hawk for violating anti-spam laws. RCMP have yet to verify if this is the same guy. Uh, from my understanding, I think he was a person that really didn't want to be known. If he was going by the name uh, uh, alias and he wasn't using his real name. So there's more than one question on this case. Wikipedia can be fraught with inaccuracies because anyone can log on and change content. In fact, since this morning's announcement, someone has updated the file to say Hawk was found shot to death as an unknown victim in 2017 and identified in October 2020. Ted Chernacki, Global News. The Cullen Commission into Money Laundering continues, investigating who's to blame for those stacks of dirty money flowing through B.C. casinos. Testimony today clarifies who had the authority to turn it away. That and much more next on the NewsHour. Call it a dine and crash. A customer thought she could escape the bill but ended up paying an even bigger price coming up on the NewsHour. And later in sports, quite a catch. A B.C. player proving she's as good as the boys on her U.S. college baseball team. A number of cruise lines have resumed operations or will by the end of the year, but they won't be coming to Canada. Transport Minister Mark Garneau has extended Canada's ban on large cruise ships until at least the end of February. Cruise ships were early hotspots for COVID-19, and Canada first banned ships with overnight accommodation for at least 500 passengers back in March. It's estimated the cruise industry generates more than $2.3 billion for the B.C. economy and supports more than 15,000 jobs. A senior Canada Border Services Agency officer was cross-examined in court today at the extradition hearing of Meng Wanzhou. As Ramina Dea reports, her lawyers are trying to argue that concerns about national security during her interview were unfounded. CBSA officer Scott Kirkland had testified he had concerns of espionage, national security and serious criminality about Meng Wanzhou. But defense questioned the officer's basis for these concerns. Defense, do you agree that throughout this examination there was not an iota of evidence gathered to support a national security concern? That is correct, Kirkland replied. 
Defense said Kirkland made no mention of national security in his notes. Mona Duckett pointing out CSIS, Canada's spy agency, wasn't concerned about the CBSA examination of Meng. Duckett questioning the border agency's justification for seizing Meng's electronic devices, suggesting Kirkland knew the RCMP wanted the phones because the FBI wanted them. Kirkland disagreed. In earlier testimony, the officer said he had zero contact with foreign law enforcement. Kirkland said he knew the case would end up in court because Meng was so high profile. So he suggested to the other officers the Huawei CFO be handed over to the RCMP quickly. But he never voiced his concerns about a potential charter breach if there was a perceived delay in Meng's arrest. Kirkland testified another border officer said there was no rush. Kirkland said he was not the lead examiner. Mung was questioned by border guards for about three hours with no lawyer before she was read her rights by the RCMP and arrested. Defense says the delay was essentially a surreptitious plot to gather intel for U.S. authorities who are seeking to extradite Mung on charges of bank fraud. Charges, she denies. Ramina Dea, Global News. More testimony today at the Cullen Commission casting a shadow on casino operations in the province. A former investigator was back on the stand and as John Waugh tells us, his testimony raises many questions about the lack of intervention to stop money laundering. Who had the power to stop duffel bags of suspicious cash from entering BC casinos? The BC Lottery Corporation's former investigations manager had told the Cullen Commission he couldn't order patrons or casino staff to turn it away. I did not have the authority to tell this patron, take your $20 bills and go. But during cross-examination, Gordon Friesen made an important clarification. He was only speaking for himself. BCFC itself would have the authority to direct service providers to turn away suspicious transactions. Yes, they would. The Gaming Policy and Enforcement Branch, or GPEB, would recommend BCLC cap cash transactions using $20 bills at $10,000. Refusing to take any more than $10,000 in 20s, wouldn't that indirectly force a non-criminal high-limit patron to use a different form of payment? John Karlovic, BCLC's former director of anti-money laundering and investigations, whose identity was also obscured, told the Cullen Commission that was deemed unrealistic. And while patron gaming funds were an early cash alternative, they couldn't force people to use it. It was available, but it was a customer convenience. There was uh, no requirement for that individual patron to actually utilize it. GPEB senior investigator Joe Schalk would call BCLC's response at the time unacceptable, citing police concerns about money laundering. I mean, it's a statement from him. I mean, I, it, in theory, it, it sounds appropriate, but again... The proof. But Karlovic also stated it personally wasn't up to him. If uh, BCLC upper management, uh, including executive CEO, as well as GPEB, and potentially the government of the day, uh, wanted to make those that move, they would have made it. Soon after, the province commissioned a review. The findings BCLC should accept law enforcement's opinion that suspicious cash transactions was money laundering and adopt new strategies. John Hua, Global News. Coming up next, the manhunt that turned into the crime of the decade. Today I'm standing here as the father of a murder victim. Looking back on the baffling murder case that captivated the country. 
and how our changing climate created a firestorm in B.C. Our coverage as we approach our 60th anniversary on Saturday. Busy but steady in both directions over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge tonight. Keep in mind of lane closures for overnight maintenance between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. For 47 years, Kermat Collision and Autoglass has provided unmatched superior customer service and satisfaction. With 18 lower mainland locations, there's a Kermac in your neighborhood. Visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Global BC 60th anniversary in partnership with Connect Hearing, the number one physician referred hearing provider. Few crimes that have captured the attention of the country, like the brutal murders of a young couple and a university professor in northern B.C. The subsequent manhunt for two teenage suspects from Port Alberni would span four provinces. As Ted Chernecki tells us, it's a senseless crime that will likely never be fully understood. Two Port Alberni teens, 18-year-old Briar Schmigelski and 19-year-old Cam McLeod, two young men seemingly with their entire lives in front of them, do the inexplicable. On July 12, 2019, they leave Port Alberni, stopping at this Nanaimo store where Cam McLeod purchases a semi-automatic rifle, one of two weapons that will be used to kill three innocent victims and eventually themselves. Surveillance video recorded two days before their first victims shows 23-year-old Lucas Fowler and his 24-year-old American girlfriend, China Deese, fueling up at a gas station in Fort Nelson. Both would be shot multiple times near Laird Hot Springs, close to the Yukon border. Fowler's father, an Australian police inspector, flies to Vancouver. As you know, I may be an experienced police officer, but today I'm standing here as the father of a murder victim. We are just distraught. Four days later, 64-year-old Leonard Dick's body is found near Dees Lake. The UBC botany lecturer is shot once and his 2011 RAV Toyota is missing. The parents of both suspects can't understand a motive. I did not program my son to hate. I did not program my son to act out in violence. I did not give my son a firearm. The manhunt crosses four provinces and ends near Gila, Manitoba. Residents throughout Western Canada are on edge. I know that some people are scared. I mean, something like this has never happened. So a lot of people are kind of worried, locking, keeping their doors locked. On August 7th, the bodies of both suspects are found in an apparent murder-suicide pact. The pair had recorded six videos where they confessed to the killings before McLeod shoots Schmigelski and then himself. They were cold, they were remorseless, um, matter of fact. Schmigelski's father tells Global News that he blames the government and police for not giving his troubled son the help he needed. I just don't want any other parent to have to go through this. I don't want any other kid to have to decide his only option in life is to go on a trip like this. RCMP refused to release the confessional video for fear it may give the two the notoriety they sought, rendering this case probably forever inexplicable. Ted Schernecke, Global News. 
Well, as we get closer to that 60th anniversary, there is one weather event from the past decade that is burned into the memory of many British Columbians. An unfortunate pun, but it's very accurate when it comes to those wildfires, Christy. Yeah, so that's right. We're talking about the 2017 BC wildfire season, which was the longest and most costly in BC history and impossible to forget. So some experts say that it started way back in the spring when well above average rainfall actually produced an increase in small vegetation, which in turn then became kindling uh, for those fires. But it was really the month of June that set the stage. June's rain is really important for providing the well-needed moisture but in 2017, we had no rain. Uh, both Kamloops and Kelowna experienced a third driest June on record. And then in early July, the province endured widespread thunderstorms. These brought tens of thousands of lightning strikes and gusty winds, but barely any rain. 190 wildfires were ignited, and by July 7th, uh, for, uh, firefighters actually knew that the province was in trouble. So a province-wide state of emergency was issued and would be the longest in B.C. history. It lasted right through until September 15th. Now, although the number of new fires waned after early July, the situation continued to be dire as hardly any rain fell. Both Kamloops and Kelowna experienced the driest July and August on record. Uh, so Kelowna, for example, they only received less than a millimeter of rain. And it wasn't until the fall that we actually started to get improvement in the weather conditions. Now, in total, 65,000 people were displaced and 1.2 million hectares was burned. That was the record at the time and 10 times the average. It is still the most costly wildfire season ever at over $649 million. Now, I would also be remiss to not mention climate change also played a role in causing this devastating season. Science has long been, has long anticipated and linked the increase in extreme uh, weather events like this to our warming planet, Chris. So that's also a key factor, probably. Hard to imagine another season like that down the road, but science mm -hmm. tells us it, it is likely. Yeah. Thanks very much, Christy. Still ahead, sharing the wealth for better health. I don't have words to like thank, thank everybody. They received millions for treatment for their boy. Now they're paying it forward. But first, a fleeing suspect pays a big price for crashing through the ceiling. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel, seeing minimal delays north and south. Keep in mind, overnight maintenance has you down to a single lane both ways. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside Walmart and Real Canadian Superstores throughout BC. For hours and locations, visit sussexinsurance.com. Open every day. I'm Trishy Wisson in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. An epic criminal fail caught on camera in Burnaby. Burnaby RCMP say a diner was trying to skip out on a restaurant bill. When the suspect crawled out above the kitchen ceiling from the washroom, she then fell right through the ceiling tiles, landing in front of the police officers. Luckily, it was just her ego that was bruised, although she missed the deep fryer by inches. No other injuries were reported. The city of Victoria is losing a popular pub and venue for live music because of the COVID-19 pandemic. As Kylie Stanton shows us, the closure of Logan's Pub is going to leave a big hole in the capital city's alternative culture scene. The song is called Hard Times, fitting given the circumstances. Initially it was just a wipeout, no festivals, everything, gigs all cancelled for six or eight months. 
Musicians around the world have been hit hard by this pandemic. No tours, no crowds, and now even in their hometowns, they're losing their venues. Yeah, Logan's was uh, formative for uh, myself and many of my compadres in the scene. Within two decades, Logan's Pub has announced it's closing its doors. In this social media post, the owners explain they have explored their options, but between the cost of health regulations, no option for a street patio, and restricted alcohol sales, it just wasn't viable. It goes on to say, it is with huge regret and profound sadness, we announced the permanent closing of Logan's Pub. It was our live music that really paid the bills, and that happened at 9 till 1 in the morning. Uh, Thursday to Saturday, so there's just no way to make it work at, at this time. The venue is where many bands launched their careers. It featured everything from punk and rap to weekly drag shows. Everybody was welcome at Logan's. That built-in following and natural sense of inclusivity, impossible to replace. This is one of the examples of how the pandemic is affecting um, businesses that we hold dear. Logan's closing its doors could just be the tip of the iceberg. There's a long list of music venues in this city and they've been struggling to adapt through the pandemic. But the reality is, if this continues, they may all be singing the same tune. Well, business is rough. In the meantime, they're doing their best to get creative. We're going to stream the music upstairs in the sticky wicket and just, you know, listen to them play. It may not be the same, but one thing is for sure. Hard times can often lead to great music. And those behind it guarantee it'll be worth the wait. I'm hoping that people will get out and support their favorite bands once this is all over and will support what little there is going on right now. And that, you know, we can sort of start to build um, that community again. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Some questions are being raised tonight about two brand new affordable housing options in the southern interior town of Caramillos and why they are still sitting empty. The buildings are meant to provide badly needed homes to people with diverse needs. But as Jules Knox reports, even though work was finished back in May, the facilities are still vacant. It's scary. Move-in day should have come and gone for residents expecting to live in two affordable housing complexes in Caramias. Instead, these brand new buildings have been sitting empty since May. I hope they get this straightened out. I hope so because there are a lot of people in desperate need of this, this housing. According to council documents, the BC housing buildings were designed for seniors and disabled individuals. A twist. But local residents say that's not the way they were built. If you're in a wheelchair, that's eye height. And they've got a drop from all the doorways of five to six inches. How are you going to get a wheelchair over there? The building's ramp fenced off with yellow caution tape around the end. I just think it's a bad situation altogether. And I don't know, uh, it's supposed to be a government project and uh, you'd think they could do a little better job. The project was built by Boston Construction. Project manager Megan Coop told Global News that the company built to the specifications they were given and that BC Housing mismanaged the project from the beginning. She also says it's now going to mediation. BC Housing says it is working to resolve issues with the contractor and hopes people will be able to move in shortly. That is a, a big deal. Locals are calling for higher government officials to, to step in. Please help us. We really, really need you. And we need it now. 
and for people waiting for a place to live ahead of the winter cold, a new home can't come soon enough. Jules Knox, Global News, Karameas. In health matters tonight, a Surrey family is giving back to others after they received a huge outpouring of support when they needed it the most. Baby Aryan was born with a rare genetic disorder and is now receiving treatment thanks to millions of dollars he received in donations. His parents are now paying it forward to other parents in the same situation. Catherine Urquhart has more. I just jumped up and down and I told her and I told her nurse. Sherry Ellert and her daughter Charlie are celebrating. The Vancouverites are also in a state of disbelief after a stranger gave them money. I woke up the next day and there was $10,000 in my bank account. The money came from the Diol family, whose one-year-old son, Ariane, has the same rare genetic disorder, spinal muscular atrophy. Several months ago, they made a desperate plea to raise $2.8 million for the life-saving gene therapy drug, Zolgensma, which must be taken before the age of two. He can't even like lift his head and he can't control his neck and can't sit by his own. Incredibly, within weeks, $3 million was raised, more than needed. The Surrey family is now paying it forward, donating to others impacted by spinal muscular atrophy. Our portion of money, I don't, I don't know it will help get that, that treatment, but whatever we can do, we are, we are doing, right? 11-year-old Charlie says she already knows how she wants to spend some of her money. It was a PC laptop and I'm really good at navigating laptops. The drug Zolgensma is not an option for Charlie due to her age. But her mom says the thoughtful gift from the Dioles will truly make their lives better. It just meant everything to us. And, and equipment she needs and Christmas coming up, it's going to be a good one. It's, it's amazing what they're doing and they're, and they're changing lives. And, 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 and I, I don't know what to say. How do you say thank you for that? Catherine Urquhart, Global News. And coming up next, carving a bridge between cultures. It's bringing two cultures together. How this totem pole honors a Japanese fisherman who found his way to BC. And the amazing skill of Marika Lishik, a BC baseball player, proving she can hang with the boys. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Heading into the Halloween weekend, not too far from now. Let's check in with Christy and get a look at the weather. Yes, check out these pumpkins from Nanaimo. Thank you to Jenny for sharing that with us. Yes, I'm calm and safe, everyone. And I have your Halloween forecast. First, I want to talk a little bit about this system here that's going to roll across our region. The good news is bulk of the rainfall for our region will fall overnight, and it will push out through the morning hours. So you may need a rain jacket in the morning, heading to work or heading to school, but you won't in the afternoon. And the other key thing I want to point out is the snowfall. Yes, we have snowfall warnings for that region, and I'll show you that in a second. But there's the clearing in the afternoon that I was mentioning. So back to sunshine. Nice way to finish off what has been a pretty gray week. Now, this is your Saturday, your Halloween Saturday. For those of you across the North Coast, I urge you to get the kids ready with a rain jacket, especially for some areas inland, potentially smithers. You may want to bundle them up a bit. But most other regions, we're talking about dry conditions for Halloween. And really, that's the most important thing, right? Dry and not too cold as well. In through the north, though, we do have snowfall. 
rainfall warnings, and that extends from Smithers all the way into the southern parts of BCP's river region. So that's this evening and overnight, 10 to 25 centimeters possible, and it will ease off for you tomorrow morning. Now, for the central coast, we're finally seeing the rain ease off, although you're still expecting some more, but more so what we're talking about is the wind warning. So you can expect gusts up to 90 kilometers an hour in behind this system as it tracks, tracks to the south. Interior regions will also see gusty winds, but below warning criteria. So there's a chance you could see gusts up to 70 kilometers an hour, more so we're talking about 40 to 50, and it shifts off by the latter part of the day into Alberta. So here's your forecast for your Friday, everyone. Again, clearing in through these regions, the system tracking to the south. These regions here will see a fair amount of cloud, but you'll see some breaks of blue sky in the afternoon, as will we in the afternoon across the south coast. So sunshine for your Friday afternoon and a pretty nice weekend, although I am anticipating some cloud cover for our Saturday, our Halloween Saturday. Trick-or-treating time, likely around 8 or 9 degrees is what you can expect. And don't forget, we change our clocks back early Sunday morning, and I'll leave you with tonight's weather window, which is a great shot of the snow in Smithers. Thank you to Donovan for that. Oh, it looks so tranquil in that photo. Mm -hmm. Thanks a lot, Donovan, and thank you, Christy. All right, Squires uh, here with us now. Look ahead to the sports. Yes, I remember many years ago, I think before you guys got here, we did a show up in Smithers. Mm, Yeah, I haven't been up there yet. Nice place to do a show. Okay, uh, maybe one day we'll go up again. Uh, Young women have played on men's college basketball teams before. Baseball, baseball. What's that? Baseball. Baseball, what did I say? Basketball. Oh, I don't know why I said that because I wrote (laughs) baseball down here. So young women have played on men's college baseball teams, thank you, Chris, before, but usually as pitchers. Being able to do that and challenge myself in college was, I think, a big accomplishment for me. So we're going to show you a local catcher who plays with the men. She's got some great skill. Look forward to that. And later, the fascinating story of Gihei Kuno from Japan and why a master carver from Squamish created this totem pole tribute. Just wrapped up the World Series, but there's an even better baseball story to tell here, Squire, right now with sports. I heard it was your birthday. Uh, that is, that might be true. Happy birthday. Thank you, Squire. That's great. <laughs> nice to see you've turned 35. Exactly. Ah, see, that's good. Uh, some BC boys and uh, players from BC teams have been invited to try out for Canada's National Junior Squad. This year's World Juniors are in Edmonton. They will uh, do the bubble thing, just like they did in the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs, so they can get this tournament done. Uh, Dylan Garand of the uh, Kamloops Blazers, Victoria Kid, he's been invited. Connor Zeri, also of the Blazers. Uh, Taylor Goche of uh, the Prince George Cougars. Caden Korzak of the Rockets. Uh, Gage Kunz- Salvez, I always, sorry Gage, Gage Gonsalves from Mission who plays in Everett and the Giants, Bowen Byram has been invited. He was actually one of six players invited who won gold for Canada in the last Worlds. There will be more spots open because instead of 20 skaters and three goalies, they'll be doing 22 skaters and three goalies. The tournament begins on Christmas Day. Vancouver and Vernon's Vashik Pospisil to the second round of the latest tournament. For the ATP in Vienna, the Vienna Open, I guess. Pospisil in the far court. Played great and won the first set against uh, Daniel Medvedev 6-4. Earth Bank is what it's officially known as. Medvedev would win the second set 6-3. Early third, Vosik all over the court and he looks like he's on E. That was pretty much it. From there it was all Medvedev, 4-6, 6-3. 3-2, or 6-2 makes that. So, Pospisil is out. 
baseball likes to talk about five tool players. Someone who can hit for average, someone who can hit for power, who can run the bases well, who can throw well, who can catch well. But Marika Lizik has uh, more talents than just those five. Marika Lishik has loved baseball from the day she started playing when she was just six. Little did she know then she would be a trailblazer. Now 19, Lishik is playing college baseball in the U.S. with the men at Division III Riviere University in New Hampshire. Just even having the opportunity to play at the college level was amazing. And to have that opportunity, I never thought in my life that I would be able to go as a catcher. So I think it was pretty crazy. There have been a handful of young women who've played NCAA baseball with the guys, but mostly as pitchers. To be a position player, especially catcher, says something about her talents. Just over a year ago at an elite camp in the U.S., she was discovered and offered a spot at Riviera University as a catcher. The fact that she can play, it's not just a publicity stunt. Um, but, I mean, I never saw it as that. I always saw her for... You know, being a competitive ball player and her accolades speak for herself. Better um, than I thought it was going to be. I thought that there was going to be a little bit more hesitant, like stuff from the guys and from the people I play against, but it was like overwhelmingly good, like positive vibes there, and I absolutely love it and I can't wait to go back. Marika is hoping to return in January and play baseball this spring, but of course COVID may have something to say about that. But in the meantime, she's working out at UBC, where she's getting hitting instruction from Pittsburgh Pirates developmental coach Justin Orton. Coming here and working with Justin has really changed the game for me. Like I was way more successful this college season, and now I'm really confident going into hitting. And while she mostly plays with and against the guys, Marika does play women's baseball as Team Canada's top catcher. She helped Canada qualify for the 2021 World Cup this past summer. That only adds to her role model status for young girls in BC, hoping to walk in her cleats one day. I got to surprise a girl on the island, and I think that's where it kind of was like, okay, like I'm actually like doing something because she eventually wants to play college baseball as a catcher. So I got to surprise her and sneak in, and she had no idea I was coming. Marika's a role model and also a fashion model, which makes being a catcher particularly dangerous. Those foul tips can ruin a modeling career, but her talents don't stop there. In my toes, makes me crinkle my nose. Wherever it goes, I always know. This is Marika's version of The Masked Singer. She actually won the Delta Idol singing competition a few years ago. But for now, she's concentrating on catching baseballs, not a recording contract. Kind of a way for me to unwind from baseball, and it's been something that I've always loved to do. I should, though, right? I should sing to the hitters. Maybe they'll get distracted. <laughs> Calvin Ridley came on down with an injury in this game tonight for Atlanta. Uh, Carolina Atlanta, look here. They are flicking fleas. It's Bridgewater to Curtis Samuel. Yes, that's a touchdown. 14-13 in the second. Well, apparently ageism does not exist with the Chicago White Sox. Today they hired a manager straight out of the Hall of Fame. Literally. Tony La Russa is the White Sox new manager, despite the fact he hasn't managed since 2011 when he won the World Series with St. Louis, and also despite the fact he is 76 years old and was elected to baseball's Hall of Fame in 2014. He was the White Sox manager at one time before, you can see it in the picture above me, but that was in the 80s. You know, towards the end of my career, I was in my 60s, right? The last five years, 60, 65, and our clubs in St. Louis 
had the same array of young guys, prime guys, and veterans. It worked, and I haven't changed. And he's so much older than you. <laughs> but yeah, and I feel it. All right, thanks very much, Squire. When we come back, a totem gift for Japan. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. One of BC's top master carvers is hard at work on a totem pole that's going to stand as a memorial on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. Linda Aylesworth has this remarkable story. A totem pole is a beautiful and sacred thing, certainly worthy of a blessing. It took master carver Darren Yelton of the Squamish Nation three months to create this pole, starting with a 350-year-old red cedar log from the Ilaho Valley. This totem pole that I created for Wakayama, Japan, for Mr. Gihei Kuno, it's a, a memorial totem pole, so it'll stand in honor of this gentleman. Gihei Kuno immigrated to BC in the late 1880s with the goal of earning enough money to help save his struggling village back in Japan. I'm very humbled that this man had the courage to leave his family from Japan and come to Canada to prosper in new territory. And prosper he did when he settled in Richmond and became a salmon fisherman. Four years later, he brought 3,000 fishermen from this village to Steveston. Together, they saved enough to raise their village in Wakayama out of poverty, making Gihei a sort of hero, one worthy of acknowledgement. One of the ideas I, I came up with is, okay, totem pole. Totem pole is symbol of Canada. I really thought it was a great idea because w what it does, it's, it's bringing two cultures together, the Japanese culture and uh, Coast Salish cultures. Which brings us back to today. All the totem needs now is some paint before it makes its journey to Gihei's hometown, doing the honors, the Consul General of Japan. Usually I put the first mark on there. Today I want you to be Van Gogh. Okay, I'm very humbled that the city of Wakayama and uh, uh, the family has approached me to create this marker. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Wow, that is some beautiful work. And what a tribute to an amazing man. All right, that's all the time we have. I'll be off tomorrow, so I'll see you next week. Thanks very much for watching, everybody. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Chris. Thanks, you guys.